Good evening, and welcome to another episode of the Jewish People Policy Institute Inside Analysis of Israel's War Against Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Uh, tonight, before we begin, well, let me first introduce our two panelists who will be joining us this evening, Avi Gil, uh, Senior Fellow at JPPI and former Director General of Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, longtime aide to former Prime Minister and President of the State of Israel, Shimon Peres, and Brigadier General, uh, retired Brigadier General Ruthia Rohn, a former IDF spokesperson and a former fellow, senior fellow at JPPI. Uh, we have an interview that I did earlier with uh, Arye Lightstone, who was the former special envoy under the Trump administration for economic normalization with the Abraham Accords. And what we want to talk about today is more of the diplomatic side of everything that's been going on in this war. A, what's happening with the Arab countries and the ones that particularly under the Abraham Accords, how have they been throughout the conflict, comments that they have made, and uh, we'll be looking to Ruth and Avi for some insight on that as well. We'll hear shortly from Arye. But before we begin, one personal comment, if I may. Today, I had two very interesting, uh, I would say, emotional experiences. Uh, first, I went down uh, in the morning and my daughter, my our oldest daughter, uh, 20, finished, uh, graduated what's known in Israel as Bad Echad, uh, the officer's training course. Uh, Ruth probably knows that place well. Um, I'm a first time uh, uh, father of a, of a graduate, but it was it was really emotional to watch my daughter uh, get her officer's pin and become an officer in the IDF. She's already been serving for about a year and a half. But especially now at this time to see uh, people and young people who are still willing to do that. After that, I had the opportunity to go to Nir Oz, uh, one of the kibbutzim that was obviously attacked uh, together with some IDF officers. And just to see those two, the contrast of those two um, images, on the one hand, these young soldiers standing, giving of their, themselves, of their time, of their resources, and of their bodies, as we know, for our country. And at the second, on the second image, walking through a kibbutz that used to be beautiful, full of life, and seeing the death that, that is still a month later, today being a month to when the war broke out and when the Hamas invasion and massacre took place really strikes home, I think, at least for me today on this day, of uh, those two images and, and those two experiences of, of what exactly it is that we here in Israel are fighting for. My own personal uh, comment, here is uh, the interview I conducted earlier with uh, Arya Lightstone, and then we'll be back for our panel. Stone, thank you very much for joining JPPI. Uh, Arya was, is a bunch of different things. A, he's a friend, He's the author of Let My People Know, fantastic book about the whole, how the Abraham Accords came together. C, he is the executive director of the Abraham Accords Institute for Peace, right? Yep. And he was the special envoy for economic normalization. normalization under the Abraham Accords, as well as holding a bunch of other roles in the Trump administration. So, Ari, thank you very much for being with us. Um, Yakov, thank you. Nice. There is a lot, there's a lot to talk about in terms of the Abraham Accords with what's been happening over the last month. On the one hand, you know, there's been some stories of some rocky, tense moments between Israel and some of those countries, Bahrain. I saw one story the other day that maybe they were pulling out their ambassador here. Some of the countries in the beginning put out statements that were a bit critical of Israel. But overall, it's interesting. It seems that they're fairly quiet. What's your analysis of how 
the Abraham Accords, particularly UAE, Morocco, and Bahrain, have been holding and towing the line when it comes to Israel's war against Hamas? Yeah, so first of all, I think you have to look at them all differently. Morocco, a country of almost 40 million people, uh, prior to the government that is here today, had an Islamist party in charge for 10 years. Uh, there was actually an Islamist prime minister who signed the Abraham Accords, much to his own chagrin. If you remember in May of 2021, when Hamas was shooting rockets from Gaza in a, they always shoot rockets from Gaza, but in, in that mini war operation, whatever it was called. Guardian so, of the Walls. Right, Guardian of the Walls. Thank you. He, he, the Prime Minister of Morocco was actually cheering for the success of Hamas, which mm -hmm. seems a little bit strange for a guy who was the Prime Minister who actually signed the Abraham Accords. So understanding that Morocco specifically has some dissonance in between their leadership by his majesty and what we'll call the new government and the the old government. And, and there are just a couple factors for your listeners and viewers to be able to know. I believe it's the only time in modern history that the Muslim Brotherhood left office by vote and not by gunpoint when the government turned over from Morocco from the from the Muslim Brotherhood party to what we'll call a Western-facing party. And I think the whole world should applaud that that's how that happened. Now, what winds up happening, the Islamist party is now using the horrific images that occur on the Arabic TV screen to it's say, I told you these guys were traitors for our cause. And, and if you think it's widely reported, 90 to 10, the TikTok images in the West favor you know, the Palestinians versus Israel, I'm here to tell you in the Arab and Muslim world, it's not 90 to 10, it's 99.9999999 to 0. 0.000001. Um, and, and, and so then all of the momentum is on the side of how did you sell out our people? And you therefore have the people in Morocco who are the leaders who I believe want the Abraham Accords to stay strong and that relationship to be there are sitting here saying, are we going to lose an election based upon Hamas attacking Israel? Like, how is that? That was not on my bingo card, right? So that that's Morocco. Um, and I understand to a degree where they're coming from. I think watching what happens next will be a big sign to see with them in terms of the day after. That, that'll matter meaningfully with Morocco. Bahrain, a similar thing. Bahrain is a small country that has a minority rule over a majority population. And so therefore the House of Representatives that announced to call back the ambassador, they did that, except they're not in charge of calling back the ambassador. It's a democracy, but it's not really a democracy. It's a, it's a hybrid. And, and the king and the leadership, his majesty and others uh, are in favor still of propelling the relationship forward. And then you get to the UAE. And the UAE, I think, has been a beacon of light in these very challenging times. They're not anywhere what we would expect America or even the UK prime minister, who I think has been really spectacular uh, to be in terms of in terms of their support. But if you look at the Arab world pre-Abraham Accords and the Arab world now with the UAE being the tip of that spear, I think we have to tip our hats to them and we have to acknowledge that they are getting an enormous amount of arrows headed their direction uh, because they're at the front of the lines here. They're not, there's no hiding within the crowd of, I, you know, used to be I condemn Israel or I really condemn Israel or I really, really condemn Israel. And therefore, so like we appreciate the people who say they only condemn Israel as opposed to they really, really condemn Israel. But here they're sitting here condemning Hamas. 
They're calling out Muslims for their activity. And then they're saying Israel should do everything that they can in order to prevent civilian deaths, which, by the way, sounds a lot like Tony Blinken and Joe Biden. Right. Okay. But before we get in, and I'm going to ask you about the U.S. political story, which is definitely a part of this as well. But but what I find interesting is kind of what you just said about, let's take the UAE as an example, right? So if if pre-Abraham Accords, they would be condemning and they would be slamming us. And then, you know, within a wink and a nod, they would tell Israel, go get them. Right. But public facing, definitely for their people, they would have to take a tougher stance. Now, like you said, there's their people, the TikToks, the social media, the people on the street are are very upset at Israel and are supporting what's happening to the Palestinians and are supporting Hamas, let's say, or definitely um are 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 compassionate and sympathizing with the Palestinian people in Gaza. But the government is not doing that. Like the, you know. They may call it as over a ceasefire. They would like to see more humanitarian aid, but they're not condemning us in a very strong way. Is 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 that the sign that the relationship is really maybe unbreakable at this point? I hesitate to use any word unbreakable in the Middle East. I think that's hard. I think there's actually something that creates these stronger bonds, though, than would have existed beforehand. There are social media influencers in the UAE who are actively taking to the Twitter waves or the X waves and TikTok waves, uh, supporting Israel and trashing Hamas. And that never would have happened prior to the Abraham Accords. And when I say never would have happened, and here what's fantastically interesting is there's a battle of ideas going on. And and what I think is going on, I don't want to overly diagnose, but I think is going on is, especially in the Emirates, but Bahrain and Morocco as well, I think they sort of view that the, the world of Islam could be divided into two groups and 9-11 was their dividing line. Do you crash buildings or do you build buildings, right? What, what are you? And I think that the, the leadership of the UAE says, we are going to make sure that Islam is known for building, for creating, for, for sanctuary, for all of the positive things. And they've done an unbelievable job of doing that. They're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Nobody is, but they've done a great job of that. And I think there's an open discussion in the Emirates today uh, with different influencers saying, hang on one second, we're going to take the side of Hamas? What what have they possibly built? And I think they look and they say, why isn't that Dubai? Why isn't that Abu Dhabi? Why isn't that Sharjah, for goodness sake? Why can't it be one of those places uh, that does that? Look look what they do with the money. Look what the, and and here's what, what, is different about this than others is Hamas broadcasted what they did. There was right. no hiding that. No. And, and that becomes like flying planes into the World Trade Center. It became, are you one of those guys or are you one of the other guys? And and the UAE made a decision after 9-11, Sheikh Zayed, may he rest in peace, made a decision that they would fight with the good guys, with America, right. even against Muslims. And that was a that was a and that decision, by the way, will carry weight throughout the rest of the history of Islam, that one decision. I think you're seeing the follow through over here. And I've heard you Emirati leaders at the highest levels talk about that 9-11 moment still today as a as, as a pivotal shift in their country's history. I want to move to the day after, right? Before the this war, 
it seemed that something big was about to happen maybe with Saudi Arabia. Yeah, you spent a lot of time in the kingdom. You, you, you've you been, you, you know, you were involved in the previous administration and, and maybe trying to bring that about. But, it, you know, we heard MBS, for example, in that really amazing interview with Fox News where he said, every day we draw closer or we grow closer to possible normalization with Israel, right? Which is something you, whoever would have thought we would hear that from the, the Saudi crown prince. And then this war comes. The Saudis in the beginning put out a statement that was not so good. But since then, again, pretty much radio silence, right? And I'm I'm wondering, according to your assessment, Arye, when this ends, and hopefully it will soon, will the Saudi normalization talks renew from the point they left off? And how does Saudi Arabia look at Israel today after everything that happened? So I think... Three things. What a question. We we can spend a long time on that. I'll try I'll try to be direct to, to the question that you're asking. Um, I hope that Saudi does not pick off from where they left off. Because where they left off was a disaster for the Abraham Accords, for Israel, frankly, for Saudi and for the United States of America. This was not a deal uh, as I understood it, that I think anybody would have been happy with in the long run. And if it was tested in a circumstance like this, I think possibly could have ruined much of the Abraham Accords. And I think this is actually a, a interesting learning circumstance for that. I think that the, the elevating the Palestinians without requiring any responsibility or ownership for them is a fool's errand. And it's like trying to make you and I to be best friends but our relationship is based upon our mutual ex-girlfriend, right? What a disaster. That wouldn't make any sense in the world. That's not how you and I would develop a relationship. It doesn't make sense. So you've got that part there where where I really hope that Saudi and Israel will do what the rest of the Abraham Accord countries did, which says, look, if you're going to be a builder in the region, so builders should be deregulated. They should have relationships with each other. And at the end of the day, they're not going to agree on everything. I'm positive that Israel doesn't agree with a lot of UAE human rights issues. And I'm positive that UAE doesn't agree with a lot of Israeli uh, politics and the current government, as well as with the Palestinians, and that's fine. But the rest of the 93% of the rest of the the job of being in the region, uh, there's actually much more agreement than there is disagreement. And I think Saudi will find that as well. That that's That's A, how the deal should get done if it gets done. B, how does Saudi view Israel today? On October 7th, I would say that Saudi was rethinking its interest in being friends with a country that looked very weak and wounded and bewildered um, and and vulnerable. Um, There is no doubt that Israel has its greatest value because it's strong. Um, We'll we'll get to the third point in one second. How, How Israel does and what Israel does will be critical to reasserting its place in the Middle East and the world. And part of that is the U.S. response. Israel's superpower is the unwavering support of the United States of America. Whether that support truly is unwavering or not will also determine how strong Israel is or is not in this per, in this circumstance. The Middle East strength is, is the number one thing that matters. It's absolutely the number one thing that matters. Um, sure. and, and if you'll allow me just to... to say one other thing that I think is critical for people to understand. In the battle for the 1.8 billion Muslims' hearts and minds, there's a battle being waged today that that the Jews are somehow in the middle of here in Israel, which is, do you want 
9-11 Al-Qaeda? Do you want Syria ISIS? Do you want Hamas and Hezbollah of 2023? Do you want that? Or do you want Riyadh and Neom and Abu Dhabi and and uh, and Dubai and Manama and Rabat and Casablanca? Which, which one do you want? And the advantage to being in Israel is it's very clear uh, who your enemies are and what you have to do to defend your people. I think that was confusing for a bunch of years, but it's never been more clear since October 7th at 7 a.m., right? That's clear. The, That's for sure. The 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 modernizing Islamic states, I think, are now doing a gut check in terms of where is the Muslim Brotherhood? What is their reach? What are their capabilities? And how do we defeat them? Because I think that that is a much more dangerous threat to them than it is to the, certainly to Israel. It might be a more dangerous threat to the West also, but an immediate threat uh, to modern countries. So that was uh, Aryeh Lightstone, uh, President Trump's former, one of his former envoys to the Abraham Accords. And I'm curious, you know, uh, Avi, uh, Avi, you've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, interacting with a lot of these Gulf states over the years. And the, uh, the, the the thing that I'm wondering about is, you know, on the one hand, the people, we kind of spoke about this with Arya, but I'd like to get your input as well. The the people are, probably stand with the Palestinians, right? If you ask the, the, the regular, the public on the streets there, they're going to be with the Palestinian people. But when it comes to the leadership, right, they haven't recalled ambassadors. They haven't really kicked out our ambassadors. I think uh, Israel's ambassador Bahrain did come back. Turkey's another story. Put that aside for a moment. But it looks like this is not only going to persevere, but, you know, if we do win in this war, and I don't see an alternative, but let's assume we do in a very decisive, clear victory, the Saudis will even come to the table. I mean, maybe this could even be a a, a positive diplomatic benefit to what will come out of this bad war. Well, uh, we shouldn't be uh, too quick uh, to, to celebrate uh, such uh, such an achievement. I think that uh, uh, the leaders of those countries, uh, they fully understand their strategic uh, uh, interests. And uh, I mean, if you run uh, uh, confidential talks uh, and open talks uh, with those leaders, then you'll find out that they understand that Israel and them, we have a common enemy, Iran, terrorism, extreme uh, jihadism. Uh, They have an interest with the Israeli economy. Uh, They appreciate our relations with America. So they're in their strategic calculation uh, are quite clear. Alas, uh, there is... uh, I would say a competition, uh, 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 which is uh, a dynamic phenomena uh, with the street. And uh, the more time passes by, the more the public watches Al Jazeera and other networks, then in that competition between the street and the strategic uh, cool calculations, uh, the street may win. Now, that victory is not necessarily going to be in a sort of a black and white situation overnight, but it 
could be gradual. And therefore, uh, before we uh, take advantage of uh, the probable Israeli victory, we have to see uh, the negative develop the developments that may take place. By the way, I mean, just two two comments on what you said. First of all, Jazeera, what a, what a, what a what a bad actor, right? The fact that we even allowed them to operate from Israel Mall for freedom of speech, uh, but they, but you know, to let an enemy uh, broadcast from your country is a little ridiculous. Number two, I loved how Blinken, Secretary Blinken, asked the Qataris to tone it down a bit. But but the other thing, just about what you're talking about, the public is how. Um, if if we don't take the public, I'll just tr- you know reinforce what you're saying. If we don't take the public into account, what we end up what we might end up with is another cold piece of sorts, like we have with Egypt and Jordan. And you know, so we have the strategic interest at the leadership level, but when it comes to people to people, it's a whole different uh, a whole different situation. Um, Ruth, I, I want to turn to you because obviously one of the big questions that we have is the diplomatic clock that's ticking. Right. And, you know, uh, the the pictures, y- y- you see it, right? Nobody's talking about what happened a month ago. Israel tries to bring back those images. Not, not, not easy. It's all about what's happening in the Gaza Strip. Lots of pressure now for a ceasefire, protests around the world, and the pressure's on, right? Uh, the, the, the question is going to be, though, and I was talking with some senior IDF officers today who are how long do we have? Right, everyone knows. How long is Joe Biden going to give Israel? How do you how do you read the situation? I think that every day we are getting closer to uh, uh, a sort of a junction where three different clocks or three layers of tension are being in dynamic. The first one, of course, as you mentioned, is the tension between the diplomatic and the a, a diplomatic clock and the military clock. And of course, for that, for us to be able to continue and achieve our military goal, which is to uh, uh, take Hamas off his military and political power, we need to preserve legitimization. To do that, we need to take every single day very good precaution of humanitarian aspects of the warfare, meaning which type of target do we aim, meaning a corridor, humanitarian corridor that we allow both from uh, at Rafah, the southern part of, of the Gaza Strip, but also to allow corridor for the population from the north to get to the south. So this is uh, those are heavy calculation on the military uh, um, the military action. And, and those two clocks are ticking one against the other and may reach a certain point where, because of the pressure of the world or uh, because of a certain humanitarian crisis, we uh, will have to stop part of the uh, military plan in order to uh, allow more humanitarian, humanitarian pause or humanitarian uh, um, uh, steps that will alleviate uh, the suffering of the population in Gaza. But at the same time, there's another clock ticking, which is the tension between the advancement of the of the military uh, um, action and the question of the uh, hostages, w- which we haven't spoken about yet. 
And we understand that as we and, and we've seen this two weeks ago, right, that that uh, boots on the ground give Israel more military and operational tactical uh, uh, aspect that could bring the hostages out. I mean, maybe we could rescue some of them more. At the end of the day, we do understand that there is there should be a sort of a humanitarian deal that will bring the rest of the hostages on. But you want to do on the ground. Uh, to achieve your military aim as quickly as you can without jeopardizing the fate of the hostages. And the third tension or the third clock that I think is also approaching rapidly, and we started to see it in, in recent days, is maybe the tension between the goal of the, the strategic goal of the United States and the strategic goal of Israel. I mean, clearly, there's a there's there, there is a very big common denominator, right? Fighting, uh, fighting Hamas, ISIS, and fighting uh, and fighting terrorism, and the right of Israel to defend itself. But at the end of the day, looking strategically, the goal of the United States and the goal of Israel are not 100 percent uh, uh, the same. And it seems that this could come to, to, to a bigger clash. So as the time passes by, we understand that on one hand, we need to achieve as many military goals, meaning annihilating or, or reducing the military uh, capabilities of the Hamas on one hand, hoping that the North, Hezbollah, etc., will not uh, or will be contained, at least for the time being, until we finish uh, with Hamas and, and Gaza, and at the same time to move on a humanitarian deal, both for the sake of the civilian in, in, in Gaza and to bring back our hostages, almost coming back, coming or to, to an explosion. I mean, we are reaching a point where it's going to be very difficult to sustain all ends. And I think that there that there's clearly major differences between what we want to see the day after and what the Americans would want to see the day after. Uh, just one word on the hostages, and and it's painful to say, but you know, we, we in the absence of not hearing political leadership in Israel say they are priority number one, because no one has said that, then they're not priority number one, right? And 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 as bad as that is to 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 admit to an extent rationally if we think with from a rational perspective the country can't make decisions because of 240 of its citizens no matter how heart-wrenching that situation is right and it is and it's terrible but 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 that can't be what shifts the the the, the policy making at every juncture i'm not sure because i think this is the battle between the head and the heart and uh, Avi, I think, was talking about the difference between the government and the streets in, in the neighboring country. Then I would talk about the same here as well. And I think that the people uh, on the streets and, and people in Israel are saying, without bringing back the hostages, this is not, there is no victory. Victory is not only reaching the military, uh, military aims. It is also bringing them back. Otherwise, right. there is no recovery for the Israeli society. What you are saying, rightly so, is that we cannot that or cannot let this be the only and the major factor. We need to calculate it and calibrate it 
together with a strategic rationale. No, uh, but by the way, if without the hostages, what is a victory is a whole separate question, which is worth discussing. Right. What does victory even mean? Avi, uh, back to you for a moment. And, and just playing off of something that, that uh, Ruth was just saying about the differences between Israel and America. I mean, the day after, right, President Biden has pretty much given us the roadmap what he wants to see. Defeat of Hamas, some new governing force, the pre presumably the Palestinian Authority, and a two-state solution, right? <laughs> How do we get there? What is a two-state solution anymore? What does that even mean in an era when we will not be able to pull out ever, or at least for generations to come? from places like the Jordan Valley. We will not be able to outsource security in the future. What can Netanyahu practically put on the table as an end mechanism? From, from Can it be the Palestinian Authority? Is he is he hoping that maybe the, the Saudis and the Egyptians come to his save, you know, to become his savior? What, what's practically from a, from a diplomatic perspective? I think that uh, Netanyahu already said what he could said uh, about uh, the Israeli prospects of the day after, uh, he argued that Israel uh, will be in charge of the security in Gaza, uh, because when we when we were not in charge, then look what happened. Uh, but I think that the uh, political vision of the day after is not going to be prescribed by Israel by its government, by rather by America. And uh, in a bit uh, different approach to what you've said, uh, I don't think that Biden already set the real roadmap for the day after. Uh, he just spoke in general terms, but not in an operative manner. Mm -hmm. And I think that the next step to watch is whether uh, President Biden uh, will set an actual plan with actual demands from Israel and the Palestinians and maybe also the Arab countries in the region. Uh, one way to uh, sense that is uh, whether he will nominate a presidential envoy, uh, not for humanitarian uh, or reconstruction, but for the uh, political goal that he will set along with other parties. And I, as far as I know, uh, this is, I mean, the uh, uh, process of considering the pros and cons of such an approach is on the table uh, in Washington is and is also part of the discussion between uh, European uh, parties and regional parties with America. Just give you one uh, yeah. in, uh, the, the, the European, for example. Uh, I met with a few of them yesterday and the main message, I mean, don't expect us to uh, be the bank of the reconstruction of Gaza if you are not ready uh, to set forward a, a real political horizon for the Palestinians. Uh, the Arab countries, uh, they are not going to really cooperate uh, with the United States in the day after unless the United States is setting a political goal for their efforts. So uh, uh, 
for for some years the Israeli government uh, is uh, you know uh, not dealing uh, because of all sorts of uh, internal uh, and external reasons, but it's not it's not dealing with this question. Uh, uh, part of the uh, implications of the uh, October seven uh, uh, crisis would be, I believe, uh, a return to that. The, um, you know, the the issue, though, with the Palestinians, and this I wonder, is whether, you know, but, but I mean, sorry, before that, just what you were saying, Avi, um, about the Americans and the Arabs, right? What we saw even when President Biden came here the day after he was supposed to go to Amman, and because of the the the, the fake news and the lies about the hospital, the, the, the Arab leaders said, we're not meeting with you. So you even see that when it comes to, this is America, this is the president of the United States, and they say to him, you're not meeting with us, right? What, what, what does that say about his standing and, and how he's perceived? So that, that that's going to be a whole challenge, obviously, for the United States. But what I also uh, have been thinking about is, OK, even if Netanyahu tomorrow were to come out and say, listen, we're not going back to Gush Katif, we're not resettling the Gaza Strip, we're, we want the Palestinian Authority to come back to Gaza. That's what was before 2007. We we will bolster, we will give them, we won't have these fights anymore in the cabinet about whether we give them the money that we collect for them for taxes. We don't give them the money. We want them empowered. And we're going to have a diplomatic dialogue. It's not going to lead to the two states that we've been thinking, fantasizing about, but it's going to be a diplomatic dialogue. But, and here's the but, the Palestinian Authority has to stop incitement. The Palestinian Authority has to make reforms of its own that stop corruption. The Palestinian Authority needs, needs new leadership. And the Palestinian Authority has to stop paying terrorist salaries as it does today, right? So let me ask both of you, uh, you know, we'll start with you, Ruth, and then we'll go back to Avi. Is that even possible? I don't know. It's it's difficult at this point because we keep going back to the two-state solution, for example, as the uh, paradigm that before October 7th, this is one of the political uh, uh, solutions that we were aiming at or hoping to get there. And then it's only natural that President Biden and the American and the European are going back to the same paradigm. But the day after the war, maybe there will be other paradigm on the table. I think you mentioned earlier with, in your discussion with Arya, uh, 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 do we go back to the Saudi deal? Now, the Saudi deal in, in the aftermath of the war and um, could be bring a sort of a new architecture to the Middle East, whereby the big divide will be on one side, uh, Iran and Hamas and the ISIS forces and the jihadist forces, etc. And on the other side, I mean, a divide even inside the Palestinian, the other Palestinian. Now, I don't know, those other Palestinian Right now, we have only the PLO, and Abu Mazen doesn't seem to be a big, uh, the great partner for that. But I don't know. It might be tomorrow morning. I don't know. The Khan, Barghouti, somebody else that will come up. Then the divide inside the Palestinian might be different. One thing is clear: that if we are to build something sustainable for the day after, something sustainable in the Middle East, we need a different uh, uh, divide between those forces, those ISIS like Iran, Jihad, Hamas's forces, Hezbollah, of course, and on the other side, the more moderate, uh, liberal state and, and society, even inside the Palestinian. And Israel would need assurances 
that a scenario like we had in the southern part in Gaza will not repeat itself. We have not discussed elaborately Hezbollah because basically we have a much larger threat on our northern border, but with the same type of pathology. So how do we deal with this? So I think that it's it's a bit early, but one thing is clear. We have to start discussing this now and to lay the foundation for what happened the day after. Israel, I don't think, will stay there forever. Definitely not. In spite of political saying that we hear these days in Israel, this cannot be the only solution of Israel facing this type of threat by itself. Avi? What, what what are your thoughts about the prospect? I mean, like, obviously, listen, we, we one, one of the things that we're not good at as a country, we're good at a lot of things. Some things we're not good at is preparing ahead of time the end mechanism and the exit strategy, right? So even when, when, when Netanyahu said last night to ABC in his first interview and said, you know, we're going to stay there indefinitely, some people thought that that means, you know, indefinitely, okay, we're going to rebuild the Mutsavim, right, the, the 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 military outpost that we had in Gaza. The, I looked at it more of, we will have indefinite security control. So just like we go into Nablus and Ramallah and Janine as needed, we will have to continue to go into the Gaza Strip. Now, it could also mean a security barrier and a zone close, you know, to keep them away from the border. A lot of things are possible. But the question is, if we, if if the PA is the best option. For that to happen, the PA has to make some serious reforms. We keep on talking about how we have to change our security paradigm, how Gaza has to change, and the Palestinians Gaza. But what about the Palestinians in Ramallah? If they want to take the rest of the reins here, they have to change. You know these guys well. Yeah. What do you think? Well, and and um, uh, they are pondering this question, and uh, you know in. Uh, Confidential uh, talks, uh, they may say that our failure throughout the years is not pro- not providing wo- what you have questioned best and most, which is security. They admit, uh, some of them at least. But you have also to uh, look at the internal Palestinian politics uh, and, and timeline. Uh, Abu Mazen is quite old and uh, I'm not sure that uh, the actual process that uh, would run uh, after the day after and the day after the day after uh, uh, will be on the Palestinian side will be managed by Abu Mazen. Uh, So uh, we will witness uh, in parallel also an internal struggle who would lead uh, the Palestinian people, uh, and it's very difficult to, you know, make predictions in that regard. But I would say that uh, the interim period, where Israel is in charge of security, uh, may take a very long time. Uh, however, I think that uh, the United States and other important players uh, would demand from Israel to be party uh, to a definition of the end game, politically speaking. And I'm not sure that it's necessarily be the current Israeli government who will have to uh, make that decision. It could be 
uh, that it would be the next government to do it. Maybe wishful thinking, maybe not. But <laughs> we'll see what will happen here politically as this moves forward. Uh, it, it, just before we wrap up, I mean, you know, what, one last comment. It's hard to believe. It really is that it's we're a month into this, you know, and that the, the last that was just one month ago on October 7th. Yeah. But all of this happened and has literally uh, ch has has changed the country as we know it, I think, before October 7th. And 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 the full repercussions and consequences and impact of what happened on that day, on that dark Shabbat of Simchat Torah of, of 2023, what that will continue to reverberate throughout the world and what it will mean for, for us as, as, a, as a secure and safe state of Israel in the years to come. I want to thank uh, Brigadier General uh, in the Reserves, Ruthia Rohn, former uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs Director General Avi Gil, and Arya Lightstone for joining us earlier. Thank you very much. And to all our listeners and viewers and prayers again for a peaceful night. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time. Thank you very much.